so tonight I was gonna I thought I was gonna talk about something different and then I realized I'm just gonna talk about the same thing I always talk about um, but it's a new name that maybe I haven't used before and it is Prajna um, I'm, I think I'm good can everyone hear the back? Um, so I want to talk about prajna, which is the Sanskrit word that means wisdom. It means wisdom in English, or it translates to wisdom. But the Buddhist view of the word is that it's sort of a cosmic wisdom. It is what I call enlightened reality or the perfect functioning of all things, the transcendent wisdom of cause and effect. So I say these things over and over again because it is my reality and it's it's a belief that I interact with as a reality. And so we all have beliefs that we interact with as reality. Like matter is composed of atoms and atoms are composed of subatomic particles. Or human beings evolved over millions of years from simpler species. Or the earth revolves around the sun and the moon revolves around the earth. Um, The only thing about these beliefs is that they don't make you happy or make you feel secure. But what if they did? (laughs) That's what prajna is. Prajna is uh, a belief that you interact with. Okay, just me. A belief that I interact with as reality and that belief says that everything is functioning perfectly exactly the way it needs to. And there's different ways of witnessing that. One way I really like to use as an example is hitting a bell, because we hit a lot of bells here. So there's a striker and a bell, and the striker hits at a certain angle and with a certain amount of force, and then sound comes out, and it is always the exact sound that has to come from those conditions. If you hit it really hard, it will be a clanging sound. If you hit it really soft, almost no sound will come out, and then we try and hit it with this sort of medium force that just with the air pressure causes the sound waves to hit your eardrum in a very pleasurable way. And we think that's right, but actually it just is the only sound that could have come from those conditions. And everything is like that. Everything is functioning in that perfect way. And it's doing so without any sort of self or ego involved. And so what Buddhism tries to witness is all of that perfect functioning happening without a self 
or an ego. And so those are sort of stepping stones, but it can get a little closer to home because we're all experiencing it. So the bell didn't have to learn how to make that sound and the striker doesn't have to think about how to hit the bell. It just makes the perfect sound every time in the sense that it is displaying the conditions that brought it into existence. All of us did not learn how to digest food. You just eat food and the digestive process just happens. None of us have to think about beating our heart. Our heart is just beating all the time. There's no self involved, there's no ego involved, and yet it's perfectly functioning all the time. When you exercise, it gets faster. When you go to sleep, it gets slower. And it just does that. That's what this sense of prajna, this sense of wisdom that the Buddhists are talking about, that's what they mean. This process that's happening all the time without, as I say, without any input from your ego. And uh, you can actually train yourself to witness it. And the Zen training has actually been uh, formulated and designed over centuries to facilitate this type of witnessing on an even more personal sense. It's really beautiful, actually. And our, the first monk in our school of Zen from Japan, he was obsessed with these forms. And I think the reason he was so obsessed with these forms is because they actually facilitate this type of awakening, this type of witnessing of the perfect functioning of reality. And so, but in order to do it, you need to do these forms over and over and over again and every single day. And we actually don't even do them here at City Center, so we really don't do it right. But we only, we do do one of them. We do one of them right, and that's chanting practice. And so every morning we have a chanting service. And the way we do it is we're chanting this sort of profound wisdom, um, but we do it in a monotone with absolutely no inflection, with no punctuation, and we do it really fast. So you, you can't even think about it, what you're saying. You just say it. And that's intentional. So one of the chants that we do every day is called the Heart Sutra. It's actually the heart of Prajna Paramita. So this Prajna thing is very important in the Zen school. And it's only one page long. So if you live here, we chant it every day. You can memorize it pretty quickly. And so people do. And then they have this amazing experience where they don't have to use the chant book. So when the, the sutra is announced, they just chant it. And they chant the entire thing perfectly word for word and the thing about this type of chanting is is that because it is so rote and so repetitive and so precise your thinking has no choice but to just go somewhere else and you can actually have this experience of chanting the sutra while you're thinking about breakfast or thinking about um like you really have to go to the bathroom like why didn't i go before service or you're thinking about, oh, you know, you might do this, the, the kind of suffering that the Buddha said that we have at our disposal. You can think about people you really like and how you want to spend more time with them. Or you can think about people you don't like and wonder why you have to spend so much time with them. <laughs> or you can think about things you want to get or things you wish you could get rid of. Uh, and then the sutra ends 
and you realize you've chanted the entire thing without any input from your ego or your thinking mind, it is a really beautiful experience. And I really do believe that Zen training is facilitating that type of witnessing of this flawless activity done without any sort of self or ego involved. And why that's relevant is that um, the only way to suffer is to think that you are a self cut off from everything else and that you are in danger of all those other things and you have to protect yourself from all those things. And so understanding that the reality underlying everything is that there is no such self really allows you to relax with who you are. And I wanted, so I've always wanted to talk about this, but I never felt like I could do it in a way that was relevant because so many of you have never done this chanting practice. And then uh, my favorite author, I think she's the funniest person alive. Her name is Jessie Klein, and she's written two books. And her first book is called You'll Grow Out of This, and it's... Um, You'll grow out of it, I think. And it's all about just the essays about being a woman. And then her new book is called I'll Show Myself Out, um, which is essays about raising her son. And she wrote this essay. So here's this thing that I've been kind of obsessed with for the last 15 years. And then she wrote an essay about the exact thing. She's writing about reading picture books to her son. So this is her. I began to notice an odd phenomenon occurring. After a long day, during which my brain filled with unexpressed anxieties and petty injuries, when I finally settled into book time with my son, I magically had the ability to read an entire book out loud without ever having the slightest clue as to what I was even saying. I was doing a good job acting out parts with different voices, really digging into characters, but the entire time, my thoughts were on something completely different. I wasn't thinking about the story. I was fully on autopilot, a mouth making words, but with no one really home. This felt really weird. I used to be a human female. I was now a Teddy Ruxton. The first time it happened, I was slogging through a book about monkeys. Or maybe it was one about treks. Monkeys or treks. They all blend together. In any case, it was a new book, our 50th book about monkeys or trucks. <laughs> These are the words I read out loud. The little tow truck loved to help his friends. He didn't know he was little. But then I heard another voice say, I wonder how much longer I have until I look truly old. I'm 44. Surely these must be the last few years of not looking fully old. Hmm, that's weird. How was I saying one thing but thinking another? My lips continued saying something about a truck. Little tow truck wanted to help his friend excavator build a new building. The other voice went on. I wonder what Oscar Isaac is doing right now. <laughs> I mean like right now. He's probably resting. My hand turned the page. 
I don't know how I knew I had finished reading this page, but somehow I did. Asher was riveted. I spoke. But Excavator said, No thanks, my big friend Bulldozer is helping me. Little Tow Truck was sad. As Little Tow Truck reeled from this slight, my endless inner monologue continued, untroubled and uninterrupted by anything my physical body was simultaneously spewing about trucks. Should I buy one of those new face things? I don't love the idea of electrocuting my face every night, but everyone I know swears by it. Ugh, maybe it's too late. But maybe it's not. Maybe I could just be one of those beautiful older women who ages gracefully and gets to be the star of a targeted Instagram campaign for some kind of ethical vegan bronzer. (laughs) I want a dog. Ugh, but if I'm being real, I know I'm too tired to walk it. What if I could become one of those people who wakes up at five by choice? One of those women who gets up and gets a cup of coffee and sits and types out chapters of a novel before her family is even up and meditates and is actively grateful? But you won't because you can't ever feel grateful, you soul. <laughs> I wonder whatever happened to that boy Kieran I liked in seventh grade. I should look Kieran up. I remember getting his number out of the white pages. The white pages. I really am old. (laughs) On and on I went until Asher's book was done. I closed it and marveled at the fact that I had literally no idea what I had just read. I didn't know the characters, the story, how it began, or how it ended. If I'd had to take a multiple choice reading comprehension test about the book, I would not have been able to answer a single question. How had I bifurcated into two seemingly separate beings? One who was nurturing my son, reading, connecting, present, an earth mother, dare I say goddess? And the other, a being you might call the real me, stewing and chewing on my own problems, mentally unmoored from the moment. My little boy was snuggled into my lap, completely unaware that we weren't sharing an experience so much as I was simply mimicking one. I was shocked at my mind's, or was it my body's, ability to do this. And beyond the fact that I was able to do it, what did it say about me that I could? Was this yet another maternal multitasking muscle that had evolved out of Darwinian necessity, an act of nature to be marveled at? Or was I very simply a woman seeking a mental trap door to slip through when the activities that nourished my child weren't entertaining enough for my selfish little mind? Back and forth, my two halves went, Jekyll and Hiding, arguing with each other about who was right and who was wrong, until even that conversation became my focus one night as I read Make Way for Ducklings. Mr. and Mrs. Mallard were looking for a place to live. Why do you keep doing this? What kind of person can't even listen to one book they are reading? You're doing it right now, just zigzagging around in your own dumb little head. This is a book you loved as a child, and your son is loving it right now. And that's something you should be experiencing as a moment. But instead, you're just monologuing again. What's wrong with you? Anyway, the essay goes on. Um, She doesn't have a religious experience about it like I do. Um, The context is different. And I think in Zen, you know, that's, that's sort of the point of the context. But I think it is really a profound experience to be able to witness this sort of caused activity, the the cause and effect of everyday life happening 
without your ego needing to be involved. And then the training of Zen is that we just quiet down in meditation enough to witness all of this happening. And I really do think that it is compassion. So a lot of people think that this kind of emptiness teaching or you know teaching about tra- this kind of transcendent wisdom is sort of there's people suffering and we're literally boiling in climate change and all this bad stuff is happening but I really feel like if all of us felt completely secure in reality we would have no reason for selfishness or cruelty I really do think that this type of understanding of reality is itself one of the most compassionate ways to be. And the Zen people have felt that way too for hundreds of years. And there's a story about two Zen monks from China thousand years ago. They're having a conversation. They're walking down the road. And one of them says to the other one, how does compassion work? You know, this compassion thing is really important. How does it work? And the second one says, it's like reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. And the first one says, I got it. I got it. And the second one says, what do you got? And the first one says, I am the ears that hear the cries of the world and the helping hands that relieve suffering. friend says you're so close you're so close and the first one says what what am I missing and the second one says there's nothing other than the ears that hear the cries of the world and the helping hands that relieve suffering and so that's our our practice. Our practice is to cultivate, prepare for. One of our teachers said we use the word cultivate too much, so stop saying it. Um, and she says we should use the word prepare for. So you prepare yourself for this belief that reality is all things working together and helping each other. And then that belief becomes so deeply ingrained that you interact with it as if it's reality. And then everything you experience just confirms the belief over and over again. And then you see everything helping and then you want to be helpful. It's really a very beautiful practice and a very beautiful process to watch unfold. And I think that's all for me.